You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 30. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holtley, coming to you, as always, from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. This episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast is taking another change and another shift from what I normally do to bring on someone uh, in an interview that is not an immigration lawyer, not an immigration consultant, and not directly linked with the Canadian immigration world. However, the story that he has to share is so fascinating, I couldn't help but pull it into the podcast. And the individual's name is Virgil Granfield. And he came into my office uh, to record this podcast live to discuss an article that he wrote about something that I think the vast majority of us have never heard about. And it is slave labor trafficking by Red Cross tsunami contractors in Indonesia following the reconstruction efforts of uh, after that massive 2004 tsunami that killed, you know, almost 230,000 people uh, throughout Indonesia in that area. And so uh, Virgil was working as a, um, a Red Cross, um, field representative uh, during that time and in some other capacities. And uh, he has just an absolutely fascinating story to tell. It's quite heartbreaking to tell you the truth in some cases, but uh, he was recently awarded an award. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in the interview itself. But I thought this just was something that would You know, it's it's a little bit different than what I normally do on the podcast, but I thought it would be fascinating for all of you out there who, uh, you know, who, who, well, just might be interested in this type of a topic, Uh, especially immigration lawyers when we're dealing with international, um, you know, people all over internationally throughout the world. Uh, You know, these are some of the things that are going on in countries and it helps to provide perspective. And I'll be honest, I was amazed at you know, at the parallels that I have seen between what Virgil shared in his experience over in Indonesia with our very own temporary foreign worker program here in Alberta. Now, it's not the program itself, but I'm just never ceased, like it never ceases to amaze me how frequently people um, are are so willing to take advantage of their own countrymen. And we saw that a lot in Alberta in the booming days um, when our economy was just exploding and we couldn't get workers if we even, you know, even when we tried to to pay them, uh, obviously large sums of money, we still couldn't find people who are willing to do some of these jobs. So this whole little underground market of recruiters and labor brokers and things like that surfaced. And after listening to Virgil explain what happened in Indonesia back in 2004, it made perfect sense to me you know, how these same patterns and problems surfaced even in our own province and our own country and in my own province of Alberta. 
So I think you'll like this interview. It's a little different. Uh, I welcome your feedback and your thoughts. Um, it's not without some controversy because they're, you know, the Red Cross, when Virgil uh, released his his story and tried to really bring this to the surface, um, who wants to have bad press with the Red Cross? And uh, and so it was. He was kind of muzzled a little bit, and and even within our own country, with the mainstream media, um, he was kind of poo pooed a little bit. Uh, with his story as being some disgruntled employee. But I think you'll find it fascinating. And uh, like I said, his article that he wrote recently won an award, um, the gold medal for investigative journalism by the National Magazine Awards Foundation. So enough of the lead in here. Um, Let's jump to my interview with Virgil Granfield. Okay, I am super pleased to have Virgil Granfield join me today on the podcast. Uh, everyone is in for a significant treat. So whether you're driving in in a long commute into the city or you're sitting in your office listening to the podcast, uh, get on the edge of your seat because this is going to be an awesome interview. Uh, I know Virgil's uh, rolling his eyes a little bit now. He's thinking, give me a break. If you if you boost me up too high, then I won't be able to meet that standard. Well, I, we're, we're not concerned about that at all. So welcome, Virgil. Happy Thanks. to have you here. Thanks very much, Mark. All right. Well, um, one of the reasons I wanted to bring Virgil in, he, he's not an immigration lawyer. He's not a consultant. Um, and, and this is a little bit different. But when I heard about uh, a recent article that he wrote about slave labor trafficking by Red Cross tsunami contractors in Indonesia, and you heard me right, slave labor trafficking by Red Cross tsunami contractors uh, that occurred following the reconstruction efforts uh, of that terrible 2004 tsunami that killed really almost 220, 228,000 people, I think, lost their lives. Well, there was a major reconstruction effort. And in the process of doing that, there was quite a bit of corruption that occurred. And uh, Virgil wrote an article entitled The Cage that um, the article was published in 18 Bridges in Alberta Literary Magazine. Uh, That article was recently awarded the gold medal for investigative journalism by the National Magazine Awards Foundation. And so, you know, when I read that article, I thought to myself, this is awesome. And uh, it was brought to my attention. And uh, and so I'm so happy to have Virgil with us. So thanks once again, Virgil, for coming. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. All right. Well, usually I go through this nice long bio of of my interviewees and uh, they send me their bios and I highlight the things that are important to them. But I thought, you know what, I'm just going to have Virgil come in and just talk a little bit about himself. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I uh, was born in Alberta. Uh, My dad was a uh, a policeman in Saskatchewan and then became a uh, a preacher, traveling, uh, traveling preacher. And my mom was a nurse, and uh, I was their first child. And uh, they uh, uh, went on the road, and uh, my dad was an evangelist. Uh, I grew up traveling, and when I was four, uh, we moved down to the uh, to the states, and I grew up in Texas. But I uh, spent a lot of time in Canada. We'd come back to Canada every year. And when I turned eighteen, I really loved Canada. And when I turned 18, I decided I wanted to go to school up here. So I uh, came to Lethbridge. It was one of the places where we had friends when I was growing up, people that we would visit, and uh, a nice community here too, uh, and a great little church that I always loved. And so I decided to come to Lethbridge to to, to go to university. I did a degree in political science at the University of Lethbridge, 
Then I did a, a graduate degree in Montreal at University of Concordia in journalism and uh, had a career in Mexico in, in business, worked in Latin America, got into humanitarian work and was recruited in 2002 by the Red Cross to become an overseas delegate for them. And so so how did you get how do you get recruited by the Red Cross in that way? Well, uh it's it's a job that a lot of people want. Um and to get to be recruited like that, it's a matter of uh of having experience that they value, mm-hmm. experience working abroad and in humanitarian work. Uh most people don't start with the Red Cross, so start with smaller organizations right. and work work up to that. Uh, and it's also, you, you have to have a number of languages. Usually you have to have a master's degree, uh, in a related field. So, and, so how, so you speak other languages as well? Yes. I speak a number of, a number of languages. So what languages? I started with Latin in high school in Texas, <laughs> and that was a great foundation for a number of other languages. So, uh, I learned French later, uh, while I was here in Canada, I went to, when I went to Quebec for my graduate studies, I went to a couple of summer schools and then I did all of my interviews and so forth in, in my work there in French. And then I went to Mexico for three years, uh, started a little business there and just by you know, in the street and with taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. And then in my work every day, I picked up Spanish yep. and then later, uh, picked up Indonesian, uh, while working for the Red Cross in Southeast Asia. It was a little harder than picking up Spanish and yeah. French, but, uh, yeah, but not quite the Latin base. No. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely <laughs> starting over from square one. That's very cool. So journalism then. Yeah. Journalism is something, uh, even when I was, even when I was a little boy, I, I wanted to be a writer when I grew up and a fireman. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I had a notion, uh, I, I was always a, a pretty decent writer. I was going to go to law school when I was finishing my degree, and, and an English professor, uh, who I was in uh, a rhetoric class, and he said, I think you should be a writer. I don't think you should go to law school. And I thought, maybe there's a way that I could combine what, the reason I wanted to go to law school and, um, and that desire to write into one. They, they, I wanted to go to law school because I cared about I cared about justice, and especially for people who didn't have access to justice. And um, and so I thought, well, maybe as a journalist, I could do both: be a writer and still um, and still try to help people who who don't have a voice. And so I uh, so that's why I decided to go to to journalism school. Now, journalism is a tough field, uh, and a lot of people don't know this, but it's very low pay uh, work. And it's a hard go, and I wasn't necessarily uh, great at the business end of things. Uh, I went to Mexico soon after I finished graduate school, and uh, you know, I almost I had a tough time of it just to survive down there. And that's one of the reasons I started a business there, a business that represented Canadian schools, uh, three hundred Canadian schools in Mexico, Mexicans wanting to come to Canada. Um, but I, I always kept trying to do some journalism whenever I could and was a freelance journalist. So I would write a magazine piece or a newspaper article uh, on the side whenever I could. And in fact, it was a, a magazine piece that I wrote for the Red Cross, Red Crescent magazine after I had become a delegate for them that uh, when the tsunami uh, happened 2004, 
there's some people in Geneva who'd read a magazine article that I'd written, and they said, he has to be our guy in Indonesia. It was the biggest, it was the largest Red Cross operation in history. Uh, in fact, it's the largest humanitarian uh, operation in history. It was the biggest tsunami in recorded history. Talk a little bit about the tsunami. Remind the, remind our listeners, you know, some of the, the lawyers listening are, are, are younger lawyers, and it's it's been almost 12 years, I guess. Uh, let's yeah, see, 2016, right. 12 years since yeah. that massive tsunami. Can you just remind us a little bit about what happened? It's, it's hard for, for people who uh, have not been there. It is really hard to describe to them... Uh, how powerful and catastrophic that tsunami was. So they say that the the force of the waves was something like the equivalent of 1,400 uh, nuclear bombs. Uh, it didn't... The, the tsunami... It, if if anyone has anyone's been to the to the beach and stood in the waves and you have these little two-foot waves come and they have a lot of power to them... That wave for the tsunami in Aceh, where, where I went, in some places was over 100 feet tall, 100 feet high. And it literally moved the earth. In some places, it, it completely erased islands or created new islands where it used to be land. Uh, and so it, it scoured the earth in a way that uh, almost in a, at a divine level, uh, at a level that we can't even imagine. And uh, it killed uh, two hundred and about two hundred thirty thousand people in, in Aceh province, which is at the north tip of the island of Sumatra in, in Indonesia. That's the place that got hit the worst. Most people ha- who have seen any footage of the tsunami in two thousand four have only seen footage that tourists took in Thailand, where this where the wave was quite a bit smaller. But even then, it was quite powerful. Uh, but m- most people haven't seen the wave in Indonesia because uh, there was a civil war at the time and martial law, and there were only about four, four or six foreigners in all of Aceh at the time, and nobody with the kind of cell phone technology and etc. So there was, uh, there were no images coming out of Aceh after the tsunami uh, like they were out of Thailand. But really, was uh, an unbelievable thing that happened. Wow. So. Uh, talk to our, our listeners a little bit about your role with the Red Cross and what they had you do when you went over there. I was recruited as a, a, a field delegate. We all start as field delegates, a kind of a jack of all trades, uh, but each of us also with a, with a, a specialty. So Did they give you a little bit of training before you, yeah, they, they turn you, you loose? A, <laughs> they give you a bit of a boot camp, but the real purpose for the boot camp is to weed out people who can't... Uh, really work under high stress, high stress. situations. Yeah. That's the main thing. It's not physical boot camp like yeah. you would have in the military. It's one more that puts you in these uh, really high stress situations, see how you can work with the group and leadership skills and so forth and following skills, which are important as well. Um, so they, But my specialty was as a communications officer, and that was because of my background in journalism. And so my, I guess my primary role was supposed to be uh, making sure that donors knew what the needs were in Indonesia and also what we were trying to do to, um, to deal with those needs and uh, also providing uh, an access point for visiting media, journalists, and so forth from around the world so that, they, so that they wouldn't interrupt the other work that was happening. 
And so I, I was, so I ran the, the media department, the, in a sense, the public relations department for a $3 billion operation there uh, that, that involved, directly involved about 12 Red Cross societies, uh, meaning Canadian, British, German, and so forth. So I managed media for 12 societies there, plus about another 50 countries that were contributing. But um, I was also a field delegate, which meant that I also had to be ready to respond to whatever other needs that we had. So I did another, a, a number of other programs, but also in March of 2005, there was a massive earthquake, 8.9 on the Richter scale, that leveled an island uh, called Nias off the coast of Sumatra. 2,000 people were killed uh, and another probably 100,000 people who were left homeless. And so they put me in charge of, of the emergency rescue and relief uh, stage of that. So I ran the operation there for about a dozen Red Cross agencies, coordinated our efforts and so forth. So I did uh, kind of a little bit of everything while I was there. I also ran a, a radio program where I had uh, Red Cross psychologists, Achenese-speaking psychologists, who would take phone calls, text messages, written messages from people in the camps to, uh, uh, to help them deal with their grief after the tsunami. And that's something, that's one of those intangibles that people don't think about. For uh, after a disaster, often people need hope more than they need almost anything else. To be able to, to get out of the tent in the morning and just get out there and try to live. And so a, an, an operation, the response, should not only be material things like houses and, and um, so forth. A response that includes also a psychological component is a really... Uh, helpful one so I that so this radio program was part of that it was heard in a number of the camps and even as far as Malaysia people listening to uh, well the psychologists just hearing the questions and talking to people about different things that they could do as a community to help one another get through um, get through that yeah the grief. grief yeah wow so uh, whose idea was this that was my idea <laughs> <laughs> good idea was, yeah, thanks very much that was uh, I think actually people who come from the prairies um, are especially f uh, good at uh, overseas work because here if uh, you you have to have a bit of an imagination to, to create things and to, to 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 respond to things and solve problems and so forth nobody's going to do it for you and you can't be just a consumer here you really have to be somebody who, who if, if you want it you have to make it and so uh, we, I think we have that sort of can-do um, attitude, <laughs> and so um, I, I hope that I brought a bit of that to, to the work. There. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I, I guess in some small little way, I see myself here in the metropolis of Lethbridge, Alberta, yeah. with an office in Calgary, but this is my home base, and, yeah. and I can tell you if I had to rely on Lethbridge as the sole source of my work... Um, well, I probably should go back to teaching high school. Sure, sure. And so you have to be a little creative, such yeah, as this podcast, absolutely. and do some different things to absolutely. to get uh, noticed in uh, a more noisy world, if yeah, you will. Absolutely. Huh. Yeah. All right. So, so you're here. You're you're you're. I should say you're there. You're working for the Red Cross, and um, then you must have had some exposure to someone who said, "Hey, were you are you aware of what's going on here?" So, you know, there's this, maybe you could share a little bit of a background um, on this labor trafficking, you know, issue. 
Yeah, I th- I think actually um, the the problem started uh, early on. Uh, in in a sense, the problem didn't start with the problem. The problem started with an attitude and a uh, a misordering of priorities. So I went to Indonesia twice for the Red Cross. The first time I went for a year in that emergency phase when we were doing all the things that are classic Red Cross uh, uh, responses, you know, food and water and health care and so forth. And then, like I was saying, the psychological care and so forth. But there became a kind of obsession at a higher level in the organization back in Ottawa and Geneva, Washington, D.C. and so forth, that we have to show something to people back home so that they'll see what's being done with their money. And for us, the, you know, for, for we who are there, we're working our hearts out and, and responding to the needs that are present. Right. And so, you know, for us, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense because we see what needs to be done and we're doing it. But they were really pushing, we have to get houses built because that'll show people at home, this, this is what's happening with your money. So there became almost a mania in the organizations at a high level for numbers of houses. In fact, in my fir- at the end of the first year when I was there uh, as this spokesperson for the entire Red Cross, Red Crescent uh, movement there in, in Indonesia. Now, you've mentioned Red Crescent a couple times. I don't think our listeners fully understand what you mean by that. Oh, sorry. Uh, so the Red Cross was started by uh, a man uh, from Switzerland. He was a businessman, and he happened to be riding a carriage through a battlefield. I remember that yeah. with my first aid class. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Henri Dunant was his name, and he was just basically a person who could not turn his head the other way when he saw people suffering. Went into the village of Soferino and uh, said to people, we have to do something, get out there and help. Because there were thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers on the battlefield who were, were crying for help. No one was, was helping them for water, for, for, for care for their injuries and so forth. So forth. So, uh, so he got uh, the, the people from that town to come out with him, and they took care of those people on the battlefield. And he wrote a book about it later, and that book was the foundation or the spark for the creation of the Red Cross in Switzerland. And in fact, the, the organization became the Red Cross in honor of this person from Switzerland. But the, uh, the, the Red Cross was never supposed to be a religious organization. It was an organization to respond in a neutral way to uh, the needs during wartime, especially at that time. But nonetheless, politically, over the uh, decades, uh, there was a reluctance in some countries that saw the need for having a Red Cross organization, but these were Muslim countries the Red Cross med- meant something completely different in their countries because of their experience of the Crusades. Um, the Red Cross uh, had its political and historical negative attributes to it. And so there was a kind of a compromise where it was decided that they could have the same, they could belong to the same organization but under a Red Crescent which uh, we, was reflective of their own religion. And interestingly, um, Israel is one of the only societies that are countries that doesn't have a Red Cross because they don't have either one of these. Mm-hmm. And so they have their own Ben-Gurion society, which is a, a blue a star of David. But um, uh, I guess, uh, sorry, I'm, I just forgot. No, the, no, the that's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I was asking about the Crescent and, and ah, so yes. how it, how it came, came about and that... That makes perfect sense. Okay, yes, so yes. that's that's where it fits in. Yes, and so uh, uh, 
So there was this, like I say, this mania for numbers of houses. In fact, at the end of my first year, when I was supposed to be dealing with World Media doing that first year anniversary, my bosses in Geneva were pushing me to, in a sense, fib about the numbers of houses that had been built. And I said to them, people, when they gave us money uh, to do the work in Indonesia, when they put a loony or toonie in the can or wrote a check or what have you, they weren't thinking how many houses were going to be built. They just wanted people helped. That's all we have to talk about is how we are helping people. We don't have to prove anything else. So, But when I left Indonesia, that was still the mentality. I went back about a year and a half later, and I saw how that mentality played out. They had become so focused on this numbers of houses and that, that physical proof of what we were doing that they changed from working with families to, build, to rebuild their houses, which was the original plan. And they decided that's too slow and will be criticized for working too slowly and there won't be enough proof of the good work we're doing. So they changed from working directly with families, which is what we had done for decades, for generations before. And they adopted a brand new model of outsourcing to corporations to do the building for them. So rather than families actually getting out and working on their homes, they pushed them to the side hired these corporations to bring in a half a million workers from Java, which is about 2,000 kilometers away, to bring in these poor construction workers to do the work for us because they thought we could do it a lot faster that way. And in a sense, we could do it cheaper. But we didn't need to do it cheaper because we had more than enough money to do the work there. But there was kind of that mentality and so the people who were involved in setting up these contracts, this is the other thing that went wrong. The people that were involved in setting up the contracts from the Red Cross set up a lowest bidder tendering process. Uh-huh. So then you had the corporations competing with, the, with each other uh, to win these contracts. And a number of the corporations, in fact, most of the ones that won the bids, basically factored out money that they would have paid to employees. And this is where the problem started. So I didn't know any of that until I went back on my second, uh, for my second mission. And it was a short mission. I was supposed to be there just for some of the regular communications work and so forth. But I noticed right away when I arrived that things weren't right. I saw that there were uh, two classes of people there in Aceh. There were the people, the tsunami beneficiaries, and then there were these people doing the work that obviously weren't eating right. They were um, really living in terrible conditions. And I could tell from my experience working around the world, these men were not in a very good uh, situation. So I asked some of my field, uh, field officers uh, in, in one of the, the areas that seemed particularly bad. I said, what's really going on? I said, there, there's going to be some, some media, national and international media, coming here soon. And I don't want them coming here and, um, you know, and me not even know what's, what's the truth of what's really happening here. So can you just tell me the truth? And so a couple of the officers said, well, actually, we have hundreds of our workers who aren't being paid and trying to escape and trying to walk back to Java where they came from. The contractors, the middlemen have not been paying them. And um, in fact, the people that were building these houses for call them the Red Cross slaves. That's the term that they had come 
So these were workers who were recruited with the expectation that they had jobs waiting for them to contribute to this relief effort, but to provide for their families, only to arrive there and realize that it wasn't quite the picture that was painted for them. Right. The uh, Just a few years prior to the tsunami, uh, in fact, only a year prior to the tsunami, the Indonesian government um, changed the labor code to, in a sense, create um, an outsourcing regime, is what it's called, in Indonesia. A number of countries in Asia have done this, where there is no longer a contract between the company and the worker. Now, the only contracts, especially in the construction industry, are between the contractor and a middleman, an agent, a labor agent. So the labor agent uh, is paid a certain amount of money to provide workers. In a sense, they're provided like supplies to a project. And there is no contract uh, or legal obligation between the company and the workers themselves. And so what was happening was these uh, corporations were bidding out very low to do the work, first of all. Uh, And then they were offering uh, these contractors a certain amount of money to bring in the workers. The contractors have only oral contracts with the workers themselves. So they would go to villages and contract people 50 at a time, a busload at a time, basically, in, in Java. So they say, come to Aceh, we'll give you four times what you're pay- getting paid per day right here in Java. You'll get paid a lo- a, you know, good amount of money. You'll eat three meals a day that we'll, you will provide for you. You live in great con- living conditions, and we'll pay your transport from here to Aceh and Aceh back to Java. Uh, once those workers got to Aceh, what happened with all of them was the instant they got off the bus, they're being told that they now owe money to the contractors for their transport and for the food that they've been eating on the way. So they start the job already in debt. I, ca- I cannot tell you how familiar this sounds to me yeah it even happens here doesn't it alberta yeah our boom yeah the people that would come into my office who were being exploited by their own countrymen who were forced to mortgage their homes or whatever they had in their home country to pay for things that they really should never have had to pay for right obviously in alberta you know the the incidence of of outright slavery is probably fairly low right but exploitation i see the same patterns yeah. that that yeah. you're describing in in uh, indonesia yeah uh, that occurred here yeah absolutely absolutely and the um the un definition of trafficking human trafficking says that the person who is involved as the agent and the company or individual that is benefiting from the, from the trafficking of that individual is equally guilty of trafficking. I see where you're going. That if you are, in, that if you are receiving the benefit of that, um, you're, you, you know, you're, the way that I think of it in some ways is you know, the person who goes to a brothel or, uh, you know, or you know, certain hotels in red districts in, you know, in Asia where... Uh, the, you know, they, there's a pimp that brings a prostitute to them. But the, the, the crime there is not just with the pimp. The crime is the person who knowingly uh, participates in that transaction, where the girl on the other end, she might be doing that work because she's definitely not doing it because she loves you. 
Uh, she's probably doing that work because of extreme poverty in her home. And you don't know, but you have a pretty good idea that there's some pretty shady stuff happening there yeah. between her and the pimp and exploitation and so forth. When you nonetheless go ahead in that transaction, you are also guilty in that transaction. And I do know that there... I think that the organizations that were there didn't either didn't know necessarily exactly what was happening with those workers, but had a kind of a sense of what was happening. But I also, in my investigations later, found that that a number of the organizations knew exactly what was happening and but just they, turned a blind eye. Turned a blind eye, but also they used the law. They they said, "Well, we're not legally responsible for what's happening." So we know that uh, that these workers aren't being paid. We know that they're being lied to. We know that uh, all these terrible things that are happening to them. But the law says that there's no contract between us and them. So they use the same argument that the contractors used, saying, well, there's no contract between us and the workers. The Red Cross also did that. They said, we only have a contract with the contractor, with the, with the corporation that's doing the building, and so we have no legal responsibility for what's happening. So I guess... <clears throat> I don't want to delve into too too many details in terms of the Red Cross, but sure. who who in their right mind would feel this was okay? You know, who who at what level, how far up within the Red Cross does this actually go? You know, where 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 people are, are you know, obviously there's a certain level where individuals um just have no clue what's going on. But how far up does this you know, does this backtrack? You know, you've got your level, you've got your people that are on the ground, your, 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 your field people, and then you've got the ones that are giving the orders above them. And eventually it, it goes back to your national headquarter. Yeah. So, you know, like, <laughs> and you don't have to answer that if you don't want to, but, you know, at some point in time, you would think that someone would step in and say, you know, this isn't, this isn't right. Yeah, I think that... Well, this is a big question for me as well, in, even in the work, in the writing that I'm doing and so forth, is trying to figure out what it is in us, not just in an organization, but also just in us that allows these sorts of things to happen. And uh, there's a certain uh, kind of organizational behavior. Corporations tend to exhibit it, and people forget that an organization like the Red Cross is, for the most part, another corporation. Uh, and so there are people who have careers that they want to protect, and there are people at a lower level who their job is to protect the organization. For instance, uh, when this uh, issue first came up in, uh, in, the, in public a few years ago, uh, what I found interesting was that the public was listening on one side to a delegate who had actually been on the ground for two missions, and then I went back to Indonesia to investigate this for another seven months afterwards. I remortgaged my home to be able to do this, really invested a lot in it to find the truth. And, and let's just delve into that for just a little bit. So there reached a stage where you no longer were there on behalf of the Red Cross. Yes. They, they, the, what, uh, so uh, when my field officers told me what was happening, then I investigated immediately uh, just and and using my journal my skills from journalism uh, and did a, a first investigation reported that my findings to my bosses in Indonesia and Ottawa and so we have a real problem here 
and um, explained it to them uh, that you know that, that he, what the workers were telling me that they hadn't been paid in months, that their families weren't receiving any money, that there were many of them that were trying to escape and so forth, and some of them that were getting sick and even dying. And so uh, there was an immediate response of circling the wagons within the organization. So I was immediately the outsider when I brought this unwelcome news to them. And there were people whose reputations depending, depended on uh, the perfection of the operation. And so they immediately tried to discredit me on that. So there was an... Uh, and this is this, people within our country here. Yes, within our country or from, from our country. So it was more important for them to prove that nothing was happening than to actually know what was happening. And so there were kind of two uh, directions in, in that sense, two sides, and that was myself and a few field officers who really cared about, were alarmed by what was happening, trying to prove that to the organization, and then a, a group of higher-level managers who were trying to prove that it wasn't happening. And um, they... so. Uh, at one point, I told the Board of Governors and the Red Cross, look, if you, if you don't do something, because by then it had been a number of months, things were getting worse. I said, if you don't do something, I'm going to have to go outside of the organization about this. So they pushed the management at that point. And the management uh, said, well, we'll have an investigate. We'll call in Ernst & Young to do an audit. But we'll do that. Three, they'll come in three months from now. And in the three months in between then, my field officers who remained in Indonesia because I came home uh, at the end of my mission said that the managers are just telling the contractors to make sure that everyone's paid before the investigators get here. So in a sense, it was a cover-up from the very beginning. So uh, nonetheless, I, st I stuck with it, tried to work within the organization to, to solve the problem, and I eventually resigned uh, because I was really uh, disappointed that we weren't caring about these families, uh, the, these workers and their families. We, uh, the organization would not consider the notion of trying to compensate any of the victims or to do other things to make sure that this didn't continue because we had still another year or two of work to do there. So basically they, <clears throat> they cleaned their acts up long enough to, to go through the audit and then return to business as usual after. Yes, although they tried to they tried to do a guided tour with the audit and only have the auditor see two of our 21 projects there. The auditors smelled a rat and because two of my field officers were with the auditors and they said the auditors weren't happy with that. They broke away and went to two other villages and that's where they found the problem. And workers who were currently in a trafficking situation and so forth and so uh, the Red Cross to this day won't let anyone see the the audit, the, the, the oh. report of the audit. Uh, but I uh, so I I resigned from the Red Cross. I still tried for. So another, when was that? When did this you resign? Two thousand eight. Eight. So this is four years after the tsunami. So you'd four had years after the tsunami. A number of years that you had spent there and back and right. That's mm -hmm. correct. And so then uh, I still tried for another eight months to work with the organization behind closed doors to, to deal with this. And they finally said, uh, we're ceasing all communications on this. So then I leaked the story to uh, contacts in the, in, in the media at Radio Canada in Montreal where I had done my graduate degree. And, they, and then I, uh, like I say, I remortgaged my home uh, in order to be able to go back to Indonesia and do an investigation of the entire program because of the entire problem because I had a sense it was bigger than just us. And so I also needed to make sure that the media would uh, it, 
make sure uh, that there was a story there beyond just our little, uh, op- well, not a little operation, but our own operation. So I went back for seven months and hired a number of human rights uh, workers. Uh, they spent money on vehicles. Uh, this all is that. all on your own. All on my own, that's correct. Uh, and so for seven months, I ran two separate uh, investigative crews with uh, camera equipment and so forth so they could film witnesses and victims and so forth to compile enough evidence that we sent video evidence back to uh, Radio Canada in Montreal uh, at, to the point where we convinced them that, yeah, there's a big story here. Then they sent their own people in January of 2009, sorry, 2010, uh, to uh, do their own investigation, and they found that the problem was bigger than we than we had discovered it was. That it involved uh, tens of thousands of workers. That it had gone on for far longer than the Red Cross had said it had happened, right to the last day of our operations. But the um, uh, but it was still nonetheless th- uh, when they went came out with their documentary in 2010, they pulled back and made it a kind of a he said she said between myself and the whole Red. Which, so the Radio Canada did that? Yes. At the last moment, their producers decided that that they didn't want to be seen as going after a charity like the Red Cross. And so they pulled back. They didn't defend the story. They, in a sense, left me to defend their story. And so um, uh, it th- that was never going to be a success for our side because now it's only one guy one guy's word in a sense that's how it was put uh, against an entire organization that a lot of people uh, believe in and um, so we failed uh, it was the story was successfully shut down after a few days and what I was going to say is that what I found interesting was that communications officers public relations officers and executives from the organization who had never been to Indonesia People who had professionals who had never been to Indonesia were telling people in Canada that this is not true and it never happened, and that you shouldn't believe Virgil. And I had been there. I had been. I had been their delegate there. I'd been your delegate there, and I had no reason to. to yeah, there to, was no. It, you were getting nothing out of this by you know, coming I had forward. No reason to to fabricate a story and to. You know, like I say, remortgage my home and go into debt to to do that, and but uh, but also that the people on the other side had not even been there, and were telling the public that this has never happened and um, and that you shouldn't trust this uh, this fellow who's who's saying this. And the other thing that I um, that I found interesting was uh, that I was on uh, Evan Solomon's show, The Power and Politics, there in Ottawa, and he brought up this question, well, isn't this just a case of a, a word of a disgruntled ex-employee with an axe to grind? And, you know, I, I wish that I had thought to say that at the time, but, but uh, it was his own sister network that had done the investigation, journalists for his own company that had done the investigation and found all of this. And I did say to him, well, this actually, this is not my word. This is the word of the, of many victims that were found by the journalists and witnesses and government officials and so forth who are saying this is not the word of one person. Nonetheless, I've, I've, I lost that battle. And um, so, and it took me a while to get over that. It had been a lot of years, a lot of time to, uh, uh, to fight that battle. And, um, but it 
haunted me in a sense that there were still all of those people there that no one um, had heard from or nobody believed. And I had made a promise to myself early on that I was going to do something to help those men and their families. And I couldn't forget that promise. And I had promised people when I met them during that seven-month investigation that I was going to do whatever I could to, to try to find some justice on this. So, And you, what year was that again? Well, that was 2010, the first, the first attempt at this. And so if, a couple years later, I decided I'll write a book. Because the problem with just going on, you know, with the problem with electronic media can be that people hear one story today and they're on to the next story tomorrow and there's nothing permanent about it. And so I thought, I'll write a book about this that people can hold in their hands that w- and it will be more in-depth and people will really get a, 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 a good look at what happened and also get a sense of how this impacted, impacted the people involved. So uh, then last year, I used some savings and a bit of a grant, an emerging artist grant from the Canada Council, Alberta Foundation for the Arts, to go back to Indonesia and investigate again this time, my goal was to find the f- some of the families of some of the men who had died uh, from because of the trafficking. And also, because the criticism before had been, well, you're an ex-employee of the Canadian Red Cross, so how can anyone believe you? Absolutely. Yep. That, so I thought, well, if that's the case, and if that's always going to be the, the criticism and the, and the thing that gets between the truth and, and what needs to be done, uh, I will investigate other organizations and I will ignore the Canadian Red Cross. So I went back to Indonesia last year and investigated American Red Cross, Australian Red Cross, and some other organizations who were involved in this. And um, I investigated the murder of one of uh, the workers. Uh, he was kept on an American Red Cross project with 400 other men as slaves by armed guards, men with machine guns who kept them on the job sites and they tried six times to escape. And one of these workers one night was caught outside of his barracks and uh, was caught and taken by these guards and beaten uh, over a period of hours in a cafe. And through, um, he was in a coma for three days and went home and then died of his, of his injuries. So I went back to investigate this. I'd heard this lead from one of my helpers in Indonesia. We went back and investigated this case, found the, uh, the witnesses and uh, the co-workers of this guy, but then we also went looking for the people who killed him. And to, because uh, I really wanted, to, peop- I wanted to, people to understand this is not a case of your brother-in-law who was working on somebody's roof and didn't get paid for a couple days of work. These are people who were desperately poor when they went to Aceh in the first place, only making $2 a day back at home, and kept against their will in these extreme situations. This was a deadly situation. This was not just you know a minor labor dispute. And so uh, we investigated uh, that. It took five months to find that whole story. And also uh, we investigated some similar stories with the Australian Red Cross and so forth and accidentally came across more victims of Canadian Red Cross projects. And in the, that story, The Cage, which uh, I won the award for uh, in June of this year, the, the National Magazine Award, 
that story includes this encounter with a couple of workers from Canadian Red Cross projects that we accidentally found one day. Well, I'll make sure that a link to that article is within the show notes of Thanks. the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. But, uh, but what I was um, saying was that uh, I, w- I, th- I thought, you know, if I can go back and investigate this story further, instead of investigating it in terms of the mass of numbers of people that this happened to, that, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of men who've been trafficked, when you hear about numbers on the other side of the world, I think it just goes in one ear and out the other. So I thought, I'm going to go back and find a couple of stories about one, two people that this happened to and tell the story in a way that people will really understand it and feel it because even if it's just about one person, I think we can begin to make a change. And in the process of doing that, um, Five years ago, when I did my first investigation, I met uh, a number of families who asked me to help them find their fathers or brothers or sons who never came home, who had disappeared in this trafficking. And I made promises to a few of those families to go and find, their, to somehow find their father, or at least find where they were buried, or at least find what happened to them. And so when I went back this time, I also wanted to fulfill that promise, those promises that I'd made. So I went looking for the men from those particular families to find what had happened to them. So we found one man who was, after two months on this one island, we found his grave in a ditch, basically in a buffalo, water buffalo wallow, and found the story of what happened to him. He had died of malaria after being trafficked to an Australian Red Cross project. And uh, But I had also met a man um, who told me about um, uh, a man and a wife who both died because of this trafficking. The wife stayed home, the man went and was trafficked. And then um, he said, it's the saddest story I've heard of all the stories here. And um, it really stuck with me over the years, the story of this man and wife who had, who had died. And so on my second to last day in Indonesia, I flew to this uh, area of the country. I had heard this, is ha- this had happened. And through a series of miracles, really, starting with asking bicycle cab drivers at the train station, through a series of miracles, I found the family, the surviving family of this man and wife, and met the children, um, some of whom didn't remember their parents, had never, didn't have any memory of them because they were so young when they lost their parents, and spent uh, then two days with that family. How did their parents die? Well, um, I'm just finishing a story for, I'm hoping for a British magazine uh, right now. It's a story of these two, um, but I can tell you that uh, they really died of um, this hardship that was put on them by the trafficking. So the father was trafficked with another group of uh, 50 other men from his village uh, to work on these British Red Cross projects. And and from the story that I got from the co-workers who were there with them, uh, you can see how just day after day, no food and the, the, this, the, you know, how difficult the work was and the weather conditions and the worry, the constant stress and worry about the family back at home because that family's depending on me sending money back to them for them to live. And this man had children and his wife was pregnant and every day that, that stress of 
I've, I'm stuck here. I've been lied to. The, the bosses aren't sending money home like they promised. There's no way for me to get home. And so every day, that, just that stress, constant stress of working and trying to find some way of getting back home. And so that means working through the night, you know, on some other project and in terrible conditions and constantly being lied to and again and again and again. And finally, he makes it back home. And when he does, he discovers that the wife has had to sell the home while he's been gone in order to pay debts that were incurred for her just to buy food while he was gone. And so now the wife and the children are living in a sister's house, a small little house. And um, the wife has also been gone, going through this stress while he's been gone. She doesn't tell him, but she's been diagnosed with, a, uh, with cancer while he's been gone, a, a tumor of some sort. And, um, but she doesn't go through with the operation because that means borrowing more money that they don't have. And so she hides this from the family. And so after he's been home for a couple of months, the tumor explodes, basically. And she, he tries to rush her to the hospital, and she basically bleeds to death in his arms in a, in a, in a little uh, minibus on the way to the hospital. And, um, and then he died a month later, just exhaustion and heartbreak, basically. And so those his eight kids, I mean, he's got a, they have a bigger family than the average Indonesian. Average Indonesian family has 2.3 children. And uh, they, you know, they had a larger family than most. Both of them married very young and very much in love and responsible, hardworking people. They left behind eight, eight kids, um, some of whom didn't, um, uh, well, didn't have parents growing up. And, um, and, and so many hardships because the family that they moved in with, the sister and her husband, the husband was working only as a stone carrier, only making $2 a day and raising, you know, his sister's relatives and so they've had a, a tough time of it and have suffered alone. And they're one family of tens of thousands of families that this has happened to. But my feeling has been, I'm not a typical journalist. I didn't get into journalism just to be a journalist. I got into journalism in order to help people. And um, I can't just go and take stories from people and not care what happens to them. I feel that that's an exploitative situation. And I feel that I have a responsibility that you've opened your hearts again and you've gone through the suffering again to tell me this story. I'm not going to walk away and just entertain people here at home with another story about bad things that happen across the world. I feel a responsibility to, even if I can't do anything about everyone else that this happened to, if I can at least try to help the people who I've met the people who I've interviewed and, in a sense, had, had them open, open themselves up to this pain again and open themselves up to some sort of hope again. Somebody came and heard our story. Maybe somebody will do something to help us now. And so my goal now is to write the story, but also not to forget the people that I've talked to and try to do something to help them. That's excellent. You know, my mind is already starting to roll over with ideas and different things you know that might be be done to try and help some of these individuals and you know it's so hard because like you said we hear about these terrible things that happen all over the world right all the time and you know we we look at the tv screen and we think to ourselves boy that's that's too bad yeah, yeah. and then the next day we 
we move on and carry on with our lives. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And I think just because we don't know what happened doesn't remove our responsibility for what happened. And the organization itself not wanting to know what ha- what was really happening was a kind of a way of re- removing responsibility from themselves. But um, I'm hoping that with, with the book that you know people will know what happened and, and perhaps will feel that sense of responsibility. But I believe that there's a we have a tendency, most of us do, to look at the world in a sense of they're, you know, they're brown people in poor countries, they're corrupt, and they will be bad to each other, and that's just the way that the world is. That's one of the reasons that this happened. We didn't stop things because I think our organization also had that attitude of it's just a corrupt place, and so you know whatever they do to themselves, to each other, it's none of our business. That's not true. There are very moral people in Indonesia. In fact, it was very poor but very pious people who were the only ones who helped over there. People who didn't have money but from their own religion and their own sets of faith knew that what they saw was wrong. They would share their meals. They would try to you know, do whatever they could to try to help those people. While we were driving through in our big land cruisers and making our big money and living in our nice accommodations in the Red Cross, these very poor people were trying to do what they could to help. So this idea that they don't have the same morality that we have um, is one of the reasons that these sorts of things can happen. And so I am hoping that people will um, will also accept this responsibility for our part in what happened there. Not necessarily that we as donors are responsible. Um, I just think that we as human beings, fellow human beings, that, you know, we share some responsibility for happening, what happened, but we also have a sense of mercy and love, too, that, you know, that we would care about these people and want to do something to help them. Well, I really, really appreciate you coming on and and sharing this with us. Where is the book at right now? Um, The book is... um, uh, it's in a rewrite stage. Uh, I've changed the the approach to the book. At one point, the book was more about me and my struggle and fight with the Red Cross and so forth. And I had a change of heart when I went back to Indonesia last year. And I really, I really realized that whatever happened to me in my fight had it paled in comparison to what happened to the people that you know suffered from this. And so. I was reconnected to what the what the real importance is here, and that is those people, those families. And so, I had basically scrapped the book I had been working on, and and began writing a book that was almost entirely about them. And so the um, the story, the one chapter that has been released as an article, um, it has won this award here in Canada. So that's. That's the article entitled "The Cage." The Cage. That's right. It, on the internet, uh, the 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 type the internet version of the article is something like, "Are you ready to die today?" Which is a first line in the story. It's it's my assistant there who asked me that question on the morning when we're going to go out with one of the traffickers to try to find some of these uh, witnesses, and we don't know when we leave that morning 
whether or not we're going to make it to the end of the day. We both knew we were risking our lives that day, and so they changed the title to that for the Internet article. But the next article that I'm just finishing this week is going to the to the UK, to their market. It's a much bigger story. It's about this man and wife who died. Um, I told you that story just a few minutes ago. Uh, another story that's uh, being prepared for the American market uh, and possibly to... Um, to release at the same time that I cooperate in an investigation with an organization in the States called ProPublica, which is an investigative organization, and with NPR, National Public Radio. We uh, almost had a deal last year to go forward uh, with an investigation, um, but I, I held off for certain reasons. So with this story going out to the American market, hopefully uh, later this fall, these are chapters of the book and I'm hoping to get some support for finishing the book through that, and also interest in the project itself. Um, and I am hoping to have the book uh, ready for the market and published by the end of next year, 2017. 17. Which would be 10 years to the month uh, uh, from when I discovered the, this, uh, this trafficking problem. So I'm hoping that at that 10-year mark, I can feel like I have fulfilled my promise. Well, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on, Virgil, and sharing this, this story with us. And, Thank you. For uh, and me. also talking to you in the future about ways in which we can look at trying to help some of the people that were directly affected by this. And uh, clearly it's it's been a challenging journey for you. But I appreciate yes. your, your candor. I appreciate your willingness to share the story with us. And... Um, any of our listeners who would like to read the uh, the Cage article, I'll put an, uh, a link to that within our show notes. Thank you very much. However, if people want to, um, if they have more questions, they want more information, they want to know how they can help, um, what's the best way to reach you? Yes, thank you. Uh, at the moment, I think uh, email would be best. Uh, and uh, an e- my email address is Virgil Gran. That's V-I-R-G-I-L. G-R-A-N at Outlook.com. And um, I, um, I don't have all the answers on how to uh, fix this, but I would, be, uh, would really love to talk with people uh, just about different ways that we could you know, begin making this right again. I, uh, I was saying that I, I had a chance to go public um, a year ago with this, with NPR, they have 30 million listeners, and ProPublica has a million readers. So I had the chance to go pro, uh, to go public, but I, I wasn't looking for publicity on this. What I'm looking for is justice. And I think that means having to do things slowly and doing them the right way. And I think building here, even from just building from Lethbridge, little by little, one person at a time, and building on a solid foundation like that, where this is not an ephemeral issue that's just here today and gone tomorrow and something that excites you know people for a few days on Facebook, but rather something that we engage in in a very real way, even if it's just one or two people building it that way, that I think that's the right way to do it, and that's why I've chosen to do it that way. So coming onto your show here, I think, is a really important step in that. And even if there's just one person out there who says, you know what, I want to participate whether it's through some advice or whether it uh, you know might be helping one of these families something like that I would really love to hear from people even hearing from people just words of support is always nice as well because it's a lonely business doing this absolutely well thank you once again Virgil I really appreciate you joining me today 
and uh, we'll have to get you back on once this book is officially released. Thanks very much, Mark. Or before, if something else uh, great happens. In, indeed. Okay. Super. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Mark. Well, I sure appreciate uh, Virgil coming on to share his story. You know, you can clearly see that he doesn't have any invested interest in this to to you know, get publicity or get recognition. This is purely his effort to try to bring to light an injustice that, that he witnessed and, and saw occurring um, within uh, the, you know, that area affected by that tsunami and how these um, labor brokers and, and in fact these contractors that the Red Cross hired, um, just what happens in these countries. And, you know, many of us here may say, well, that's over there and they do what they're doing and we do what we're doing and you know, we can't change anything. If they're going to do that to themselves, that's not our problem. And, and that's fair. But uh, at the end of the day, I just felt it was really important to to just try to help him get his message out. And I think anyone who's listened to this and reads his article, which is quite fascinating, and also uh, this upcoming book, will really, it'll help to put things into perspective a lot more and realize that you know what, maybe you are not interested yourself in, in doing any, anything about these types of things, but there may be other people out there that are. And so, um, yeah, I welcome any feedback, any comments. Um, I really appreciated once again, Virgil coming on. All right. Well, this concludes this uh, 30th episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, make sure to go over and subscribe on iTunes and uh, make sure as well that you leave a review. Not many people have been doing that. And if you do that, it just helps with the ranking and helps the podcast to get out to more people who might be interested in the content. So this is Mark Holthy, your, your host, and uh, I'll be signing off here. And uh, t- until, we, t- until we meet again, I uh, wish you all the best as you are doing your very best to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. This place I love my
Yeah.